0: For the last two weeks, we looked at strength number five. The pre-trib view squares perfectly with the mysterious gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th groups of seven years. Now, before we begin tonight to work on this material, I'd like to respond to an issue that may have come up in some people's minds based upon what you thought that this mini-series on the rapture would be. You may have thought that we'd take a couple of weeks do an overview of the timeline of the last days, and then cover the three classic rapture views. Then I'd tell you which one I think is the best one and then we'd move on to the next topic. (laughs) But now, if you read the title, you realize that we're in week 10 of this mini-series on the rapture, and all we've covered is the introductory concepts and the overall timeline, and what we're working on now is a growing list of pre-trib strengths. So if you're getting anxious to Knock this thing out so that you can say that you know the rapture (laughs) and know about the rapture. I'd like to give you a key concept that will help you understand why I'm spending so much time on this series. Here's your key concept and here's your first blanks for the night. Without taking the time to deal with the depths of scripture related to rapture timing, the view that you hold will either be a preference, an assumption or a mere byproduct of your theological tradition. Let me read that again and let that sink in. Without taking the time to deal with the depths of scripture related to rapture timing, the view that you hold will either be a preference, an assumption, or a mere byproduct of your theological tradition. And so, if you think we're moving slowly, then you've signed up for the wrong class. But none of this is simple. And for those who want simple, let me just be clear. That kind of belief system has really shaky legs. And so, also, for us, we need to be reminded that we've covered all the way back in Thursology number one. If you consider the volume of the biblical text that is related to the end times and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the second coming is easily the third most important doctrine of Scripture. Only the doctrines of the nature of God and of the salvation of humanity have more scripture dedicated to them than this one. So for those who are ready to do the deep dive in scripture to better understand the blessed hope of the church, that Jesus will appear and take us home, let's continue. So to help understand tonight's pre-trib strength, we need to do a bit of work on two themes that are found throughout scripture we've seen that the mysterious gap definitely provides good support for the pre-trib view. Now remember, I'm not advocating for the pre-trib view and we will also look at its weaknesses and then we will look at the mid-trib and the post-trib, both strengths and weaknesses as well. But it's important not to miss the fact that the mysterious gap also resolves some otherwise challenging complexities related to the Old Testament and New Testament covenants as well. And to help us see this, I want to introduce us to a foundational theo- theological concept that's been around for a really long time. Historically, it's been called by its German name. And you can see I wrote it in there. I didn't expect anybody to know how to spell it. It's Heilsgeschichte, And in English, here's your blank, in English it means salvation history. It, the, technically it means holy history, but in the theological writings for at least two centuries now, it means salvation history. And here's the meaning, write it in a theological view that understands all of history, all of history, literally every detail of history to be an expression of God's saving history. Let me say that again. A theological view that understands all of history, literally every detail of history, to be an expression of God's saving history. In other words, no event has ever happened in the history of the universe that has occurred outside of God's plan to save. And this flows from a fundamental biblical understanding of the nature of God and the nature of history. Ready? Here's your blanks. In at his essence, God is Savior. At his essence, God is savior. And at its essence, History is all about God saving. What the theology of Heil's Geschichte means is that there isn't world history and secular history and religious history and human history and cosmological history. There's only one history, and it is salvation history. This classical understanding holds that before God spoke light into existence, at the very first Creative event. Think of this. Before the stars and the galaxies and the planets and the plants and the animals and humanity, before any of this happened, Jesus had already been slain in the heart of the Father. And this has led to the biblical precept that Christ was slain before the foundations of the earth. God is so much Savior. Think about this. God is so much Savior that Jesus died in principle before there was anyone that needed to be saved. And from this understanding comes the concept that there's only one history in all of the cosmos. The history of a saving God creating everything for the purpose of saving. Heil's Geschichte. The history of the universe, the history of the universe is salvation history. And this biblical concept will help us understand the second foundational theme that we'll look at, the biblical theology of covenant. Now, be sure, covenant language is used often in the church, but the depth of its meaning is rarely appreciated. And this leads us to key concept number one. Ready? about covenant. Ready? Here we go. Covenant has no true synonym in the English language. You may not have known that. Covenant has no true synonym in the English language because covenant, let this sink in, covenant is actually an entire category of thought. Covenant is an entire category of thought. So you can use other words like, listen to this list, agreement, contract, contract. Treaty, promise, pledge, bond, pact. And each of these words touches on aspects of covenant, but not one of them bears the full weight of what covenant really means. And the reason is covenant is actually a way of thinking. In fact, it's an entire construct of the whole of reality. It's a way to literally think, about all reality. So being in covenant with God isn't just a promise. It's not just a contract. It means that everything about you and everything in your life is consumed by your relationship with God. He is your reality. You can't see any part of your life that isn't about your walk with God. There's no domain of your existence that's independent of who he is and who he's making you to be. All of that is seen within this covenant construct. Key concept number two, here it is. Covenant is the biblical expression. Covenant is the biblical expression of, God, of God's salvation history. Covenant is the actual external expression of the theology of Heil's Geschichte. Okay, so now you can see why we, I started talking about Heil's Geschichte. Because God's salvation history is expressed by his covenants in the world and his covenants with his people. And notice, this is one of the reasons why modern historical scholarship, this will help the light go on for many of you who scratch your heads at rewriting history in almost every setting now in the world. Uh, Modern historical scholarship is incapable of constructing an accurate historical narrative. Well, of course they are, because if you don't understand God and salvation and covenant, you can't possibly understand historical reality. And remember, Heil's Geschichte, there is no such thing as secular history or world history or human history apart from salvation history. It consumes all history. So in today's universities, no one can accurately understand human history because they've removed the entire foundation of all history. And what's the foundation of all history? Ready? God's saving work in every time, in every place, in every civilization, among every people, and in every language. That is the foundation of all history. But this isn't just a problem in the secular academy. Unfortunately, it's also one of the great tragedies in progressive theology. Since they don't believe in the historicity of the Bible, they've lost the very basis of understanding, you ready? Of understanding the Bible. (laughs) Because remember, the Bible is based upon a foundational understanding that there is no history other than salvation history. And now we're in a position to understand the next key concept. By springboarding off of key concept number two, look at it again. Look, at, look what you wrote in. Covenant is the biblical expression of God's salvation history. So the Geschichte, that's the theology, the philosophy, the foundation. But covenant is the expression of it in the world. So key concept number three, ready? If you don't understand the biblical covenants, if you don't understand the biblical covenants, you won't understand God's perspective of history or God's perspective of salvation. Now think about that. In the typical academic theology place now, many of them, they've lost both. So the idea that they're unpacking actual scripture has been lost. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to give you a crash course in the biblical understanding of covenant. And then we'll be able to see why this series of concepts are supportive of the pre-trib rapture view. So here we go. There are two kinds of biblical covenants. Ready? Number one, write it in, universal covenants. And I've got that written in there for you. The Adamic covenant. That is the covenant both to care for creation and don't eat from the tree. The Noahic covenant, the covenant of Noah, never to flood the earth again. And the New Testament covenant. Those are the universal covenants. And the second kind of covenant is the Jewish covenants. There are other names for it, but uh, most commonly that's the term. The Jewish covenants. And that's, of course, the Abraham, Moses, and David. And more details on that later and a lot more details next week. So now if I ask you uh, um, if these covenants are salvation covenants, Which of them are salvation covenants? The answer from the typical person would be the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament and the New Testament covenant. Those are the salvation covenants. But remember what we've learned. All history is salvation history and the covenants are a biblical expression of God's salvation history. And so the answer to the question of which covenants are salvation covenants is all of them. That's right. But within these covenants, there's another categorization in addition to the universal and Jewish covenant categories. And I think these are really helpful and I'll give this as a key concept. Ready? While all of the covenants are salvation covenants, a subset of them are strategic, strategic salvation covenants. All of the covenants contain promises to save the world, but the strategic covenants not only contain promises to save the world, like the picture of Noah and his family being saved uh, uh, when the the world is all coming apart, as it will be at the second coming of Christ. Of course, there's a picture in the Noahic covenant of salvation. That's the whole point uh, of the ark. Um, but uh, these not only contain promises to save the world, but they also contain a specific plan to save the world. They're strategic. Ready? So here are the two categories. We're unpacking covenant quickly. Here are the two categories of strategic salvation covenants. Ready? Number one, the Jewish covenants. So Abraham, Moses, David, those are all strategic Covenants for salvation. Now think about what God said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. There it is. Look at this. In you. What's the strategy? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And in you, I'm going to bless and save and change the whole world. And that's supposed to be true in both Abraham's life today and of his seed, of course, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, one of his descendants. Okay, so uh, the strategy to save the world was to use Abraham and his descendants as a special covenant people who God could use to take his word to the world. And number two, think about this, the original strategic covenants were the Jewish ones, and the second strategic covenant is the New Testament, the New Testament covenant. Now notice the New Testament covenant is also universal, So the Abrahamic covenant is strategic, but it's not universal. But the New Testament covenant is both universal and strategic. So think about this. The Great Commission was given to a specific covenant people, to the church, and in this covenant, Jesus said, go into all the world. So it is strategic. The church are his people to save, and the plan is the whole world. And look what it flows directly from these biblical texts. Look at uh, covenant precept number one. The purpose of choosing Abraham, ready? The purpose of choosing Abraham was to provide a strategy to to take salvation to the whole world. And covenant precept number two, look at the parallel. The purpose of choosing the church is to provide a strategy to take salvation to the whole world. It's the point. This is the point. Don't miss it. It's the business of the church. And now we're ready to understand a theological foundation regarding the covenants. Okay, you ready? Here's your blanks. Here's the foundation. The very nature of the strategic salvation covenants precludes them from being concurrent. Or if you want to put in the, the word simultaneous. Look at that. The very nature of the strategic salvation covenants precludes them from being concurrent plans to save the world. Because remember, they're the strategy. From all the way back before Adam sinned, God was already the saving God. All of history is all salvation, and all of the covenants are about salvation. But the strategies... Don't overlap. This is one of the concepts that is both theologically based and is important to the pre-trib view. Ready? So there's nearly universally accepted classical theology expressed here in a key concept. Here's your blank. There is no strategic overlap of the Jewish and New Testament covenants. There's lots of theological overlap, right? Because they're both to save the world. Many, many ways. In fact, you can't have a New Covenant theology that's inconsistent with the Old Covenant theology or you have bad New Covenant theology, okay? So, but there's no strategic overlap of the Jewish and the New Covenant. So think about this. When a Jewish person today, after Pentecost, when a Jewish person comes to Christ, they're incorporated into, guess what? The church. Don't misunderstand this, though. Don't take this to mean that they have to give up their Jewishness. This, this was one of the tragedies of the crusades. Was you don't you can't be Jewish anymore. Well, that's who you are. That's who God made you. You mean Jesus can't be Jewish? Jesus is still Jewish. So notice this. It was a disaster. But a messianic congregation may have many of the styles of Hebraic worship, but their salvation doesn't come from the Jewish rituals. Their salvation comes from, of course, being a part of the bride of Christ having recognized that the Passover lambs were merely an object lesson. And now they know the real Passover lamb, who was sacrificed once and for all, for all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, and whose blood alone, whose blood alone can save anyone. So whether they call themselves, lots of names, right, completed Jews, Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews, simply Christians, or simply followers of Yeshua. No matter what they call themselves, their salvation comes from their sins being covered by the blood of Christ and now they're part of the church universal no matter what Christian fellowship they become a part of or worship with. So notice, the Jewish covenant is not the strategy now to save the world and if a Hebrew person becomes a Christian they are now part of the church. And now we have the background that we need to understand. You ready? Strength number six. So we're working on the strengths of the pre-trib rapture. You ready? Here's your blanks. The pre-trib rapture perfectly integrates the old and new covenants. The pre-trib rapture perfectly integrates the old and new covenants, providing the precise for precise and complete fulfillment of the promises both to Israel and to the church. Next week, we'll deal with more detail with the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, but for tonight, we'll just do an overview of how perfectly they fit into the pre trib timing, according to the advocates of this view. So, look again at the familiar text from Daniel 9. Ready? Here's his sevens Daniel 77s, the seven, 77 groups of seven years. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Then after the 62 weeks, so that's at the end of the first 69 weeks total. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. There's the crucifixion, Passion Week, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That Rome did that in 70 and 7, uh, 135 A.D. And he, meaning the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant. Covenant. This is the peace treaty that starts the last seven years. A firm covenant with many, the many for one week. And so let's quickly go through what we've learned. If you, uh, This is a super quick uh, run through because the last two weeks we've done this in detail. But here's the decree that starts the 69 weeks. Then Messiah the Prince comes and cuts off. And then there's the gap, the mysterious gap. The 70th week is yet future. That's going to be the tribulation, right? The peace treaty will start it. The second coming of Christ will end it. And after that, Jesus reigns in Jerusalem on this earth on David's throne, fulfilling an enormous number of Jewish covenant promises during the millennial reign of christ and then at the end of that the final judgment and eternity and notice in the during the first 69 weeks it was israel daniel's people during the mysterious gap we know now the church and then israel will be the last seven years Um, chapters two and three of revelation are when you see the church talked about seven times actually 14 times total um and then in six, 6 through 19 it's all Jewish. It's the church is gone, vanishes, which of course the pre-trib rapture view says, well of course they vanished because at the beginning of the pr- tribulation they believe the the rapture occurred. And the salvation covenants are Israel, the church, Israel and then what we'll cover next week, the new Jewish covenant, something that most believers, most Christians know nothing about. And so, what we see here in this grid uh, we have we've seen how the pre-trib rapture explains very nicely that the church has come during that gap between 69 and 70, but then the church will leave so Israel can have its last seven years during the tribulation. So based on this timing, the pre-trib proponents would say this. Ready? Here's your blanks. There's quite a few of them, but look what they'll say, how the pre-trib uh, view explains the gap in Daniel 7. The covenants with Israel were placed on hold while the church filled the gap with the New Testament covenant. But the hold will be released when the church vanishes, allowing for the Jewish covenants to resume and to be completed. So now we're all set to do a timeline of the Jewish covenants and the New Testament covenant, and you will see that this is another uh, excellent strength, another excellent strength, of the uh, pre-trib rapture view. So um, here's your blanks. The other one had all the stuff from the last couple of weeks. But but notice, here's Daniel's clock, the decree. Here's the cross. Here's the future peace treaty, the second coming with the 70th week, the tribulation here, the millennium, and eternity. And notice the Jewish covenants. They started obviously long before Daniel. So first we have the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant covenant okay and we have the uh, mosaic covenant mosaic covenant and we have the davidic covenant remember these are all strategies to save the world all of the jewish covenants are parts of the strategic and then comes the gap okay and then when the gap is over there will be the last seven years for the abrahamic covenant why? Not because Israel deserves it. Not because Israel deserves but because God is a God of promise. And the Mosaic Covenant, last seven years. And the Davidic Covenant, the last seven years. Again, more details on this next week. Okay, and then it goes second coming and into the millennium. Now let's look at the salvation covenant specifically. So this is God's, how do, how do we define that? This is God's people strategically. Strategically placed, strategically placed in the world. That's the salvation covenants that are the uh, the um, the, uh, the strategic covenants. Ready? So it was Israel. Israel was God's people. Israel was the plan. Israel was supposed to accept their Messiah and was supposed to go evangelize the world. That was supposed to be the plan. But when that didn't happen, a gap happened. And God grafted in. Remember Romans chapter 11. God grafted in almost all Gentiles today. 499 out of 500 people in the church, Christians, are Gentiles. The church has filled the mysterious gap. And Jesus has told us we don't know we, that we don't know the day or the hour. We have no idea. But when that comes to an end, then it'll go back to Israel, Daniel's people, for their 70th seven, the horrible tribulation where most of them will be slaughtered. Um, And then we get the new Jewish covenant after Jesus returns. And again, more on that next week. And notice how the pre-trib view says that the church age ends with the pre-trib rapture just in perfect time to let Israel have the last seven years of the tribulation. So now we can see why the pre-trib advocates believe that what we covered tonight provides major support for their view. Okay? And now, let's do our application. I know I covered a lot in a short period of time, but you can always go back and watch or listen again. Here's the application. Here's your blanks. Since all of history is salvation history, remember? Geschichte. Since all of history is salvation history, every aspect of our life every aspect of our life should be about saving. Look with me at a remarkable passage that describes an event during the very height of the power and wealth of the kingdom of Israel. You probably know this happened during Solomon's reign, King David's son. Look at this text. It's in your notes uh, for efficiency. Look at this uh, from 1 Kings 10. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. She came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon, notice the list, and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made in the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, Not even the half was told me, in wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices, and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon." So the queen of Sheba was blown away by all the splendor and wealth and wisdom of Solomon. It was beyond her comprehension. But now, while she's completely captivated, look what Solomon does. At the perfect time to ask her, If she wants to know and follow and be in relationship with the mighty one of Israel and to let her know that he's got so much money that he can afford to send priests and teachers and missionaries back to Sheba with her to help save that nation, instead of that, what does he do? This is mind-boggling. Look at verse 13. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba All she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. You ready? Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. Now, let's take a big step back. Solomon was King David's son. He was the first generation after David to be responsible for carrying out the Davidic covenant, which was a strategy to save The whole world. And what kind of covenant was it? A strategic salvation covenant. It built on the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, and its purpose was for the kings who sat on David's throne to lead Israel in a covenant relationship with God so they could be used to help save, are you ready? To help save all the families of the earth, just like God had said to Abraham. And so, what was missing from this entire interaction with the Queen of Sheba? Look what she got. She got her questions answered. And she got to see how much stuff Solomon had. And she got to see opulence and luxury and possessions and fine clothing and impressive buildings and lots and lots and lots of jewels and money. But what didn't she get? Look what did Solomon forget, ready? Write it in. This is important. The reason God gave him everything he had was to be used to take the message of salvation to the world. But instead, you ready? What did the queen of Sheba get? Oh, this is so sad. Look at this. She came with riches and gifts and cool stuff and she left with riches and gifts and cool stuff. What an enormous tragedy. With a totally captive audience, Solomon squandered his wisdom, his knowledge, his position, his possessions, because the reason he had all of these things was to take the message of salvation to everyone that Solomon met. So listen, church, let's not shake our fingers and heads at a 3,000-year-old story. We're now in another strategic salvation covenant, aren't we? And God has blessed us. He's blessed us with wisdom and knowledge and lots of cool stuff in America. He's given us great jobs and great professions. And to many of us, he's even given us nice houses and all kinds of other resources. But what are we supposed to be doing with all these blessings? Exactly what God told Abraham to do 4,000 years ago, with the first strategic salvation covenant. The reason he blesses us is so we can be a blessing to, are you ready, all the families of the earth. The reason he saved us, friends, is so we he can use us to take the message of salvation to everyone who hasn't been saved yet. And this discussion leads us to a key question Here you go, it's painful, but write it in. Am I squandering, listen church, am I squandering any of the possessions or positions or relationships or resources or time or opportunities that God has given me on the, you ready, squandering it on the lowly, temporary things of this world? Have you cordoned off parts of your life where you don't think about being the Lord's saving instrument in that setting? Let me give an example. Do you see work as just work and having nothing to do with bringing people to Christ? Then let me be blunt. <laughs> you know I always am. <laughs> you may call yourself a Christian, but you haven't really joined the covenant. Why? Because if you're in covenant with Jesus, you are on a mission. And if you say that you've joined the covenant and you're not on mission, then you're only deceiving yourself because you're on your own mission. But that is not what the covenant people do when they truly know the great God and Savior. If the Great Commission isn't your marching orders, then you're not in mission with Christ. There are no bystanders in the covenant. Let me say that again. There are no bystanders in the covenant. Why? Because, do you remember what we learned about covenant? It's in your notes. Covenant is an entire category of thought. Covenant is a way of thinking. It's an entire construct of reality. Ready? Covenant is a way of life. So being in covenant with God doesn't just mean you made a pledge. It means everything about you and everything about your life is supposed to be consumed by your relationship with the one true God. We must guard against seeing any part of our life. Listen, any part of our life, our recreation life, our entertainment life, our financial life, our work life, our school life, our neighborhood life, our relational life. We must guard against seeing any part of life that isn't about our walk with God. There's no domain of our existence that should be anything other than totally consumed by who he is and who he's making us to be. So tonight, we've seen the enormous biblical emphasis on how throughout the ages, God has been looking for a people who will join him in covenant to help him save his world. So we're going to end with a key question. You ready? These are your last blanks. Here's the key question When my history, when my history, oh, listen, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When my history is finally written. Will it be a Heil's Geshikta, Ready? Will it be a salvation history? When my history is finally written, will it be a salvation history or will it be a history that's all about me? As we finish, let me ask Have you joined God's Heil's Geshikta? Have you been making your own Geschichte? Have you been. Joining Salvation History, or have you been interested in your own history? Is your life about God's plan or about yours? How much of your time and energy and resource and effort, how much of that do you spend on taking God's salvation plan to your world? So let me ask you again. When your history is finally written, will it be a salvation history Or will it be a history that's all about you?